Well, we are continuing in Second Peter chapter two today, and and one of the themes that's evident in First and Second Peter is that the introduction of Christianity and the Christian community into any other man-made society creates a clash of kingdoms. Now, Christians are commanded to never violently spread their kingdom. They're commanded to graciously love their neighbors, especially those that disagree with them, even to the point of laying down their lives for people around them like Jesus did for us while we were his enemies. Christians are called to go above and beyond in love and service for their neighbors while kindly and patiently bringing truth and the gospel message and remaining personally faithful through it all. But a new people with a new set of values and morals introduced to the broader community will inevitably be met with some resistance, some opposition, some confusion, and there, there will be friction. And especially as Christians claim, as we do, that Jesus is Lord of all. They, they claim that there is a different ultimate authority than the one that others are living under. And so First Peter, which we walked through last fall and last winter, was all about living in a world where the values of your neighbors are not the values of the Christian community. And First Peter included a lot of guidance like this. First Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he says, out there, even in these tense and difficult days, he says, keep your conduct honorable. In, in another place, he says, not to suffer at the hands of your neighbors because you're actually doing evil. They may accuse you of doing, doing evil, but don't let that accusation stick. Don't let it be true. Don't deserve the reputation of being a jerk, even if they give you that reputation. But know that even if you do good, even if you're kind, even if you're winsome, even when they see good deeds in you, they may speak against you as evildoers. And you gotta be content to just leave it all till judgment day for God to sort all that out. Don't try to get your own vengeance. And so that's some of the guidance for life out there when our values are now on a totally different planet than the values of some of our neighbors. But in Second Peter, another reality of church life comes into view. And that's when, when people who are, are part of the church, part of our community, smuggle in ideologies from the broader community and import values that don't line up with the values of Christ and promote acceptance of some of the unbiblical philosophies and sinful ways of life that are accepted in the world around us. And so I'll just let the text say it before, before I say it. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter wants us to know that there's going to be pressure from outside the church, and there's also going to be pressure from inside the church. John Calvin said it's necessary to point this out because some people will mistakenly think that Jesus reigns over the church and therefore the church is a tranquil place. And sometimes we can think, you know, I don't know about this church. There seem to be a lot of problems there. And then we kind of go on the search for, for that tranquil church. And then we find it for a little while, but then it doesn't last. And certainly there are reasons to go to a different church. Churches can become corrupt all the way to the core with false gospels and unbiblical teaching and legalism or licentiousness or corrupt leaders. Like there are reasons to go somewhere. 
But Peter says, don't go looking for a place where things are easy. There's going to be really difficult stuff that happens for Christians out in society, but also even in good and faithful churches. And until Jesus comes back, it'll be similar to the way things were in the Old Testament when false prophets just kept rising up. If you read through the Old Testament, you see this again and again and again. Often because they wanted to make money, prophets would speak the words that other people wanted them to speak. They would speak words and claim that they were from God so that they could manipulate others. And Peter says, just like it used to happen then, it'll happen among you. Now listen to what Deuteronomy 13 says about that. Deuteronomy 13, 1, it says, if, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder... And the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. So in Old Testament days, there were these these prophets who could come and they could conjure up some signs and wonders to make themselves look authentic, but then they led people astray to follow other gods. And here Moses says, don't follow them, even if they appear authentic. Even if they've got power behind the things that they're saying, don't follow them if they're leading you toward other gods. Walk after the Lord your God. And their presence among you, it's a test for you to know the genuineness of your faith. Will you keep walking after the Lord when an attractive and seemingly authentic alternative is proclaimed by a false prophet? Sometimes we read through the Bible and we say, you know, I would never do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. But the truth is, there's always a tree planted among us that we're not supposed to eat from. There's always the tree of attractive, popular, trending, false ideologies brought by authentic-seeming people. And so Peter says, just as there were false prophets then, there will be false prophets among you. We aren't in heaven yet, even in a good church. And people will come in among us who seem authentic and who do damage. Really, this is kind of a helpful realization to come to and will help us grow in our faith, just to kind of know that there's not going to be an easy church life here if we're trying to be faithful to Jesus. Now, in many ways, church community is the closest thing that we've got to the kind of community that we'll have in heaven, but it's still a long way from that. We're still a long way from from having on earth as it is in heaven. And just having that expectation can be a tremendous relief, just that we don't expect that things will get easier. I know early on when we planted our church, it seemed like it was all the time we were striving against what I would consider to be really false gospels. Um, like people coming in denying the Trinity, people coming in and denying the, the authority of Scripture, people promoting really extreme and bizarre legalism. And, and it was just like over and over again. It felt like we were playing whack-a-mole all the time with like these things that could really affect our church. And I remember thinking, well, eventually we'll, our church will be established and then it'll get easy. And we have not yet reached that place. And I think the the assurance that we have from Peter here is we won't get to that place here. Just like they had false prophets among them in the Old Testament, they will be among you. They'll come and they'll, they'll take God's name in vain. They'll use it to manipulate. They'll lie about what God said. So just be prepared. So what will it look like? 
Again, verse one, he says, false prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Maybe a a better translation would be that they would bring in from the outside destructive schools of thought. And this is, is not to say that any wisdom that's not taken directly from the Bible is wrong or bad. We, we actually have a lot to learn from science, a lot to learn from nature, a lot to learn from mathematics and economics and medicine, and all truth is God's truth. So this is not here a warning about gaining wisdom in any field that isn't the Bible. It's true that what the Bible says is true and it's all for our good, but the Bible doesn't say everything that's true. And even though the Bible speaks to everything and frames everything, it doesn't speak directly to everything. So the Bible doesn't tell you how often to change your oil. Now, it it does tell you to pay attention to your resources, to manage them well, to cultivate all of life in the world God's given us for his glory and for human flourishing. And so, so that does frame how we view everything, including how often we change our oil. But there's no part of the Bible that tells you how to change your oil or, or how often to change it. It's not like somewhere in Leviticus, the Mazda service manual is hidden in there. And we say, look, it's everything we need to know. There is stuff we need to know outside of the Bible. We'll talk about this more when we get to Psalm 19 this summer. But God has written two books. He's written the book of the Bible, but also the book of the natural world. And we can and we should learn from both of those books. So we don't have to worry about becoming too wise in medicine or in science or in history or in any other true field of study. But the warning here is that there are schools of thought that come from the outside of the Christian tradition that if believed in practice, will be wildly destructive. So for example, in the last 20 years, there was a good and healthy recovery of the idea that Christians should care about justice in the world around them. That's absolutely true and good. Part of loving our neighbors is loving them with good laws and making sure that the poor have the same access to justice as the rich, helping the oppressed, advocating for laws that, that protect the most vulnerable among us. Those are all good parts of a Christian view of justice in the world. But then what happens is that, that many start importing into the church definitions of justice and approaches to justice that, that don't line up with the biblical definition or biblical approach, but then actually end up being really destructive. And so just to kind of tick absolutely everybody off, you saw it on the left and on the right, um, where, where white supremacy was imported into the church and called justice, and critical race theory was imported into the church and called justice. And both are, are divisive. Both treat a group of people as permanently guilty and permanently suspect. Neither provides the kind of redemption and reconciliation that the gospel actually offers on that issue. But both have been imported into the church as a solution because both would call themselves just. And we say, well, we're called to do justice. And this is just one of many examples. And notice in verse one, he says that there will be destructive heresies, plural. There'll be, there'll be many destructive schools of thought that are imported into the Christian community. So there are marriage-wrecking schools of thought that say that everybody should do what's right to them and, and that vows are disposable. There are schools of thought from the manosphere on Twitter that lead to the abuse of wives. There are schools of thought that lead to gender confusion among children. And as they're increasingly called good and right in the broader culture, they get imported daily under the banner of doing what's good and right in the church. 
When we think about false teachers, obviously it's right to look at the people who are teaching formally, look at the people who are teaching behind the pulpit, but they're certainly not the only ones who teach in the church. False teachers don't have to have positions as teachers, they just have to teach. So it can be a Christian friend at a coffee shop who's playing the part of the false teacher and importing the philosophies of the world, treating them like they're true and feeding the destruction that comes with them. And again, if I didn't warn you, this is a dark passage. <laughs> These are gonna be some dark weeks. They're gonna be some hard weeks. If you're new with us, we just go straight through books of the Bible. So we try to kind of match the mood of our passages. It'll be bright and sunny again someday, but this is, this is where we are. And so Peter goes on here and he, he mentions one set of these destructive heresies in verse one. He, he, and he uses the word even here to show that he's making an exa- or he's using one example. He says, they're even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So one big destructive school of thought that's imported is denying the Lord through sensuality and causing Christianity to be poorly spoken of. So he says that this one particular group of false teachers, they deny the master that bought them, but not necessarily through outright denying Jesus with their words, but they deny him with their lives. They might do okay on a doctrinal exam. They might not be denying him in their doctrine, but they're denying him, he says, with their sensuality. We're warned about this often. Titus 1.16 talks about people who profess to know God, but then deny him by their works. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, uses this, this deny the one who bought them language. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So we can deny the Lord who bought us with our works. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, it's sexual sin or any sexual gratification outside of marriage. And he says, it's an affront to the fact that we are not our own, but we're bought by the blood of Jesus. In the book of Jude, which is worth reading while we're going through 2 Peter because they're very similar. They seem to have borrowed each other's material as they they wrote these books. It says this in Jude 1 verse 3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So it seems like a major false teaching is to pervert the grace of God into sensuality. To deny the Lord who brought us, who bought us, who redeemed us, who who pulled us out of sinful ways of life only to run right back into those sinful ways of life. And then we somehow couch that whole thing in a twisted teaching that justifies all of that and calls for its acceptance. There's a a YouTube video of uh, a Russian guy pulling a sheep out of a really narrow ditch. If you saw this a year ago, if you just go to YouTube and look, 
sheep in narrow ditch. Um, and so he, he, he grabs this thing by its leg, and this sheep is like screaming in fear because it's stuck in this narrow ditch. And so he grabs it by its leg, he pulls it out, looks painful, but now the sheep is like relieved and happy and, and just prances along the side of the ditch, glad to be there. He'd been screaming in fear, but now he's prancing in happiness. And then he takes about three steps and then bounds right back into the ditch, and you hear him scream again. <laughs> like, ah! And so... I think what, what very often happens is, is that we, as Christians, we are redeemed by Jesus. He pulls us out of the pit. He helps us to see his beauty. He helps us see the destructiveness of the things that we were pursuing. He pulls us out. We bound along happy and free and then jump right back into the same ditch and deny that we were ever pulled out before. Or as Jude puts it, we, we pervert the grace of God into sensuality, denying the Lord that bought us. And this, this sensuality, it certainly involves sexual sin, but also it includes all of the ways that we cast off restraint on our desires and seek to fulfill them. And we treat our desires as ultimate, even when they conflict with the commands of God. And there are two big ways that we, we twist the gospel teaching to allow this. There are two big ways that, that we teach falsely and that we need to watch out for. There are two big ways that we deny the Lord who bought us. There's actually a ditch on, on each side of the road when it comes to believing the gospel. On one side of the road is the ditch of moralism or legalism. And that, that's what says that the gospel is helpful, the good news of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross, that's good, that gets us started. But if we're going to be real Christians, then we better work hard and be good to make ourselves acceptable before God. We maintain our rightness before God with our good works and our effort alone, we think. We work hard to obey and know the standards and keep the standards because we think that that's what we need to do for God to continue to love us. And so we can very easily take the focus off of Christ and put it on us and on our efforts to be our okay or stay okay or to be worthy. But if we think we're doing a pretty good job keeping God's law and keeping his commands... We're pretending. Because we all know, like, we, we don't actually live up to it. And if our life is a life of pretending or performance, this leads to all kinds of hidden sin, but also persistent shame and guilt and fears of being found out. Or we'll invent rules and laws that we can keep to make sure that we have a leg up on other people, to make sure we feel a little better than those around us. And so legalism is one of the ditches that we fall into. We pervert the grace of God and we make it all about us and our effort. Then the ditch on the other side of the road is sometimes called licentiousness or antinomianism. It's against the law. And that's where we rightly realize that law keeping and rule keeping can't save us. It's only the grace of God who does that. So in response, we wrongly get rid of God's commands and his standards. We wrongly get rid of all calls to obedience. We wrongly stop pursuing conformity to Christ. And, and we know that we're not more Christian on our good days than on our bad days, so we'll say, well, I'm covered by grace. I'll just do whatever I want. I'll, I'll sin it up. We don't want to be legalistic or religious or all about the rules, so we blatantly do what we know to be sin, and we just say, ah, it's, it's cool, I'm forgiven. And then we start to call the acceptance of our sin grace. Now, we might think that people who are antinomian, who are licentious, we might think they just believe the gospel too much. They're way too into free grace. But actually, they just believe it too little. 
They think that the gospel of Jesus is only the solution for our guilt and our forgiveness, but then they fail to realize that the gospel is also the power for our growth and the power for our change and the power for our practical holiness. But the fix for, for this antinomianism, the fix for this do-whatever-you-want-ism is not more laws, but it's the realization that the gospel frees us from sin, from our guilt for sin, but also from the reign of sin over our lives. When we believe the gospel, that Jesus died for us and was buried and rose again, that imparts to us everything that Jesus has done so that we don't have to do anything to be right with God anymore. And it also imparts to us the spirit of God so that we cannot live unendingly in ways that contradict the gospel without his spirit prodding us and convicting us and leading us toward change. And if we consistently live out of step with the gospel, with no confession and no, fight, no fighting of our sin, then we have to ask if we've really believed and we've really received the Spirit. The gospel is the life-changing message of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to save those who would believe and to welcome them into his story in which he'll one day make all things new. And belief in it, while, while it doesn't require good works for us to have that belief, for us to become Christians, it does create good works in us. Which is why even though the gospel is what God has done and, what we have, and not what we have done, Paul says this in Philippians 1.27, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And manner of life here is the Greek word polituo, which is where we get our word Politics. It actually means to be a good citizen or to conduct yourself according to the laws and the customs of, of your state. It's the same word Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the, the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So our citizenship, the, the state where we have our ultimate home, where we fit the best, where our values and our virtues are defined, where we get our primary customs, is the kingdom of heaven. And he says that our conduct, our way of life, should, should look like we are citizens of that kingdom. But we're constantly tempted to import the values of the earthly kingdom around us and to live by them as opposed to living in step with the gospel. And it's a popular way to do things. Again, verse two, he says, many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So many will assume that the grace of God means the acceptance of sensuality. Many believe that the, the fact that we are saved by grace through faith means that the acceptance of all lifestyles, of all forms of sexuality, of all views of the world. Many will assume that grace means the acceptance of sin. And that the values of Christ are indistinguishable from the values of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. That it's all the same. Many will follow those kinds of teachings within the church. And what will come with that 
as some use the grace of Christ as an excuse to sin and cover it up as Christian leaders, is that many from outside will look at the church, and he says right here that the way of truth will be blasphemed or spoken against. I mean, aren't we seeing that in our day? Where church leaders have used the grace of Christ and the demand for forgiveness to cover up sexual abuse in the name of Christ. And every day in the news, as a result, Christianity is spoken against. I mean, are these things not being fulfilled in our day? And in dark moments, you got to wonder, like, is Jesus building his church? There's so much pressure from outside. There's so much corruption inside. So many are walking away from the faith as a result. Is there any hope for us? Is there any future for us? Well, Calvin gives some hope here. He wrote this in the 1500s, and so, so this is encouraging. This was a long time ago. The church has been fine for the last 500 years, but this is what he said. He said, it's indeed no slight offense to the weak when they see that false doctrines are received by the common consent of the world, that a large number of men are led astray so that few continue in true obedience to Christ. So at this day, there is nothing that more violently disturbs pious minds than such a defection. It's like we see all these people walking away from Jesus and it's like disturbing us. Listen to his stats. He says, for hardly one in 10 of those who have made a profession of Christ retains the purity of faith to the end. One in 10 maybe keeps walking with Jesus all the way to the end. Almost all turn aside into corruptions and being deluded by the teachers of licentiousness, they become profane. Lest this should make our faith to falter, Peter comes to our help and in due time foretells that this very thing would be. That is, that false teachers would draw many to, per- to perdition. So Peter's helping us by, by telling us these are going to be the realities. Pressure's out there. Pressure's in here. Many will be harmed. Many will be misused by it. Many will be led astray by it. And many will say, if that's what the kingdom of God is like, I don't want anything to do with it. Peter goes on in verse 3. He says, And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. The other issue is that people will come in and, and out of greed, exploit the church. And there's never been a lack in church history of people who will come in and make prosperity promises that, that if you give them cash, then God will give you cash back. They're, they're after their money, and they, and they tell you what, they want, what you want to hear as a result. And that's what motivated those false prophets in the Old Testament. It's what motivates many false teachers today, that they want to say what pays. Which means, you know, I'll say the hard things that you want me to say, but I won't say the hard things that you don't want me to say, because that could cost me. And Peter warns three times in this passage about their destruction. In verse 1, he says their destruction will be swift. Here he says their destruction is not asleep and that their condemnation is not idle. Ironically, we'll see in chapter 3 that one of the false teachings these guys bring is that Jesus won't return, Jesus won't judge. And and here Peter's saying, no, he's going to judge you. They may think it won't happen because it's taking so long, but he says their condemnation is wide awake and it is coming. And so our response should be a little bit of fear and trembling to the fact that we do have a God who's active and alive and, and is a judge. 
In Galatians 6, 7, and 8, it says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So he says, don't be deceived. And we think, well, how is anyone deceived? Well, we think, well, I can keep on sinning and nothing will happen. That I'm the exception to this law of sowing and reaping. That, yeah, this stuff's true, but it's not true for me. And you can live under that deception for a long time because you don't reap the harvest from, from sin right away. False teachers can false teach for a while and they can lead astray with sensuality. They can draw a crowd. They can make money. They can exploit those they lead out of greed. But if they think that one day they won't face judgment for that and reap what they sow, they are deceived. And he says, because God is not mocked. You say, well, what does that have to do anything? Who's mocking God? Anyone who says, I won't reap what I sow. Because then you're saying that he's not real. He's not a judge. He isn't holy. And God says here, I am not mocked. He uses the same tone that a parent would use to say to a child, I will not be shown that attitude. I will not hear that word used again in my house. It's kind of a warning tone. Don't mock God because he will not be mocked. He'll see to it that that kind of deception doesn't last long and we will reap what we've sown. And none of us will be the exception. So in response, we we run the only place we can run, which is back to the gospel of Jesus which means turning from a life that's driven by sensuality and, and, and turning to him and forsaking our ways. It means turning from treating church like a consumer product that is supposed to just give me everything I want to hear, where we can just pay teachers to say what we want. It means turning from the sensuality of legalism and the ego boost that it provides as we convince ourselves that we're better than others. It means turning from the sensuality of licentiousness and believing all that the culture tells us about sexuality and marriage and lust and greed and prosperity. It means learning the scripture so that we can discern when ideas and values are those of Jesus or just those of the surrounding world and repenting frequently and running to Christ. And so however we're erring right now, whether it's through legalism or through license, we run to the cross of Jesus. We run there and we confess our sins. We believe in what he's done for us in dying and and being buried and rising again. We turn from all the ways that we've lived that have denied our Lord and Master and the ways that we've become our own lords and masters in our eyes and we turn to him and make him our Lord again. And for all who run to Jesus, regardless of what sin we're bringing there, For all who will come to him confessing our sin, renouncing our sin, making him Lord, he offers real forgiveness and grace. And he will not accept all of our behavior. He won't accept all of our values and claims. But he will accept us if we're willing to drop those things and run to him. So let's just pray for a moment and confess our sins in silence and, and then I'll close.
Well, Father, we confess that so often we are the reason that, that false teachers even exist. Because we like to hear what they have to say. The religious among us like to hear that, that I can be good enough through my works and better than other people. The greedy among us like to believe that my giving will make me rich someday. And as these teachers give us the same hope that lottery tickets give us, they reveal what, what our hearts are after. We confess that we want to believe the lies of our culture, that I can make my own identity, that I can be whoever I want to be, that I can pursue whatever my senses desire, and that it'll go just fine for me and I won't reap what I sow. So forgive us, Father. But Jesus, your cross speaks reality to us. There you died for sin, showing the holiness of God. You showed that there are real consequences for every false way. And you also showed the mercy in the heart of God toward sinners who would turn to you. By dying as our substitute, you offered us immeasurable grace. So thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your gospel. And Spirit, we pray that you would give us discernment. Help us to study and know your words so that we might not succumb to false teachers and their lies. Give us faithfulness to you, including joy in you, even in this world where there's, there's pressure from within and pressure without. We need you for all of these things. We need your forgiveness and we need you to sustain us and we thank you that you've promised to do so in the gospel of Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, as we've confessed our sins to him, we know he's faithful and just to forgive them. And, and Isaiah says this in Isaiah 25, 9, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation.